Thanks for joining us for Open Bible Online today. Open Bible Baptist Church has been in South Jersey for over 60 years. We love this community and we want to be a help to you. In order to help us help you in the best way possible, would you do us a favor? Please fill out the digital connection card posted in this link. Here you could post prayer requests and also ask any questions you may have about Open Bible. If you'd like to give today, you could give online in less than two minutes. Visit openbiblenj.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service. If you have your Bibles, please start with me, Matthew chapter 28. As you're turning there, uh, Richard gave an introduction already, but just maybe fill in where we're at. Um, Eleven years ago, next month, I was in New Jersey to marry Casey, and a month later we moved to Colorado. We spent six years in Colorado. Uh, I was a youth pastor at a church out there. And, and God just laid on, on our hearts, uh, Florida, that's where I'm from, and when we'd go home to visit family, uh, the amount of growth that was taking place in, in my hometown was just unbelievable. A thousand people a day on average moved to the state of Florida, and it seems like 990 of them are moving to Sarasota. And so I would just, I would just tell Casey, like, no, no plan in my brain at all to move back to Florida. Like, I loved Colorado. I loved skiing. I loved the mountains. Like, I was all in on wearing, you know, flannel every single day of the year. Like, let's do this Colorado thing. And I just kept saying, someone needs to put a church here. Someone needs to put a church here. Someone needs to put a church here. And she got tired of me saying that. And so she finally said, why don't you do that then? And I just said, I'm not a church planner. Like, I'm a youth pastor. I hang out with teenagers all day. Like, we eat pizza and ice cream. Um, like, I don't, I don't know what church planning, I, I don't do that. And, and yet, God wouldn't let that go. And so, four years ago, almost five years ago, we moved back to Florida. And then two and a half years ago, we officially launched Gospel Community of Sarasota. And that took, uh, day one was 13 people. And uh, a couple months ago, I don't know why I'm doing this. Uh, a couple months ago, we had 37. So, we praise God um, for what he's doing. Um, I really, they are, they're in a discussion group right now, so my brother preached, uh, he probably just finished, knowing him, he probably finished about 30 minutes ago, uh, but he just finished, and um, they're in a discussion group, and I'm, I'm glad to be here, I'm thankful to be with my family that's in New Jersey, I'm thankful for being out on the boat, and we went clamming yesterday, and it was so fun, but there's part of me that really just wishes to be back to be in Sarasota, and so, anyway, uh, here we go, Matthew 28, um, oh, I, I was going to say this, good thing I have notes, um, Prayer request for, our, for us, for Gospel Community of Sarasota. Uh, we, we, in April, were approached from another church in the community that they wanted to merge with us. And so we are in that talk. And, and there's a lot of things that, just a couple of hang-ups, I guess. And, and the church is 150 years old, and we are two and a half years old. Uh, like, they just have... And nothing wrong with anything I'm about to say, but there's a lot of tradition, there's a lot of just things that are hanging on to that may not be helpful in reaching the community, and so we don't want to do a takeover. Uh, we're not interested in just, like, hey, here's a free building, let us, let us take over. We've seen that happen multiple times in Sarasota, and I feel like they're building a kingdom, they're just not building God's kingdom, and we want to build God's kingdom. And so for us, it's real simple. If God's for it and it's going to help his kingdom grow in Sarasota, then by all means, let's merge. If it's going to hinder the kingdom, then by all means, we'll just stay separate. Uh, the church is 1.4 miles away from where we're meeting right now. Uh, and so it's, 
It's, it's a great opportunity, uh, but we also understand it may not be what God has for us. So I just ask that you would pray for us in this possibility of a merge uh, with this other church. All right, Matthew 28. Now, some of you aren't shocked. Like, here's a guy who's going to speak for one week, and he's a church planner, and Matthew 28, like, hmm, wow, that was easy to figure out. Uh, I bet I know what three verses we're going to look at. Um, and, and you're going to know that, like, right? No shock here. Um, but I don't want us to let the familiarity of Matthew 28 keep us from, from understanding what God has for us. Like, God's word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that's true on, on the hundredth time I've read it or the first time I read it. And so don't allow something that's familiar to say, well, well, I already got this. I already know this. I know what this means. Like, like, no, we always need to grow. We always need more of the word in us. And so please don't tune this out just because we feel like we know it. Right? Second thing, we're going to start reading in verse 16. And I feel like we normally don't, right? We normally start in verse 18. But we're going to start in verse 16. And in this story that Matthew would, would write down for us through the Holy Spirit, there's going to be two words that always stand out to me when I read these, these, these five verses or so. So I'm not going to tell you what they are yet, but, but I'm just going to ask you as we read through them, like, like does anything jump out at you? Does anything just seem, can I say, weird uh, in this text? All right, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Any, any two words in there that just, that just kind of jumped out, like just... Really? Like, is that really how it went for me? Those two words, every time I read this passage, is in verse 17. They come and they worship Jesus. Makes sense. And some doubt it. Doesn't make sense. Like, you, 11, have been with Jesus for three years. You've seen him die, and now you see him alive again. You've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, and a withered hand that got healed, and leprosy was healed, and demons cast out. Like, you've seen all of these things that we could go through the Gospel of Matthew. Like, you've seen it all, and yet you're standing in front of a risen Savior, and you doubt. Like, really, guys? Like, you're really doubting. And Matthew, the one writing, like, I'm not, this is outside the Bible, right? This is my input, not from Scripture. But as Matthew's writing this, I wonder if he's including himself in that. Like, I know some doubted. Why? Because I doubted too. Because I stood in front of my risen Savior, and there was doubt in me. What did they doubt? Actually, before we ask what did they doubt, let's ask, who are we talking about that doubted? In a crowd with Jesus, there's going to be many, many people, right? Hundreds of people were normally in this crowd with Jesus. So, so we're just referring here to the large crowd of people that were, were walking and, and surrounding Jesus probably at this time. I don't think so. Why? Because of verse 16. Then the 11 disciples. Were there more people included in that? Yeah, I'm assuming so. But I think Matthew makes a point to say the 11 disciples in verse 16, and some doubt it, I think it's going right back to the 11 disciples. And so, so here's this doubt that they have, and what is it? Where is this doubt coming from? Well, I think there's two areas that this doubt is coming from. One, I think there's this lack of, of, of faith in Jesus. Right? Like when Jesus said back in the beginning of the Gospels, when Jesus says, follow me, they knew what that meant. 
They didn't know what all that was going to bring about in their life, but they knew what that meant. Why? Because Jesus didn't invent disciples. People before Jesus had a group of disciples that would follow after that teacher and learn from that teacher. And when that teacher died, what did they do? They carried on the teaching of their teacher. And so the, this person, this philosopher, this rabbi, whoever it might have been, his teaching would continue through his disciples. So they knew when Jesus says, follow me, that at some point they were going to be turned over. Jesus was going to say, it's your turn. I'm, I'm moving on. I'm going to die, whatever the case would have been. And now it's your turn to continue teaching. And I think some of them are, are, are putting this together. And I think some of them are doubting God's timing. Like Jesus Really? This is the best time to say, all right, it's your turn? Like, like you want me to step up and do that now? You want me to start teaching what you taught? You want me to start doing what you did? Like, I, I don't know, Jesus, if you really know what you're talking about. Right? But is that not us? Like, how many of us have gone through a Christian life and we've seen God do miracle after miracle and saving our soul and growing us and just God things that we can't explain any other way except for what God has done in our life. And yet we get to a certain point and we look at God and we say, really, God, like, like can I really trust you with what you're about to do now? I was expecting a right turn and now you're saying to go left. Like, like I, there's some sort of doubt. Like, I know you're all knowing. I know you love me. But I, there's still a little bit of doubt here. Like, do you really know what you're talking about, Jesus? But I think there's also doubt in themselves. Like, like, they are putting this together, I think, that Jesus is going to leave. And what are their thoughts? I think their thought is, I'm not ready. Like, Jesus, you can't leave yet. I'm not ready. And again, is that not us? We're going to look at a text today that is for every single believer in this room. And there's going to be some of us who are going to be filled with doubt the moment we read that verse. I can't do it. I didn't have a Bible degree. I didn't go to seminary. I didn't grow up in church. I never had anyone disciple me. Like, whatever the excuse is, but we all have some sort of doubt that I'm not good enough, I don't have the ability, and I don't have the power. But notice what Jesus says. Like, Jesus knows, this is not in the text, but Jesus knows that they doubt. How do I know that? Well, I know that because he spent three years with them, and and guys like Peter and James and John who would argue who gets to sit next to Jesus, like, it wasn't hard to figure out what they were thinking. Right? Like, like, it didn't take him to be God to recognize that these 11 men are probably have some sort of doubts. But then on the second point, he is God, so what does that mean? It means he knows exactly what they're thinking. And so what does he say? Like, he knows that they're doubting, and yet he doesn't say, all right, like, if it was me, all right, boys, have a seat on the mountain, let's go over it again. And let me just walk you through everything I've done and why you shouldn't doubt and, and, and why are you doing this? And it would be this belittle and berating and like, let me put you in your place type of thing. And yet that's not what Jesus says. He says to them in verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. What is he telling the disciples? He's saying to them, get your eyes off of yourself and put them on the one who has all power. Put your eyes on the one who has all authority. Put them on the eyes, put your eyes on the one who has who is sovereign over this entire universe of heaven and an earth. Like there's nothing in this universe that is outside the control of Jesus. And yet we say, Well, I don't think I can do it. You're right, you can't, but you're serving the one who can. And so often in American church today, what do we do? We try to pump up the people in the church and we try to tell them that they're so good and they have all these abilities and they're so this and they're so that. And Jesus doesn't do that with the disciples. This isn't a pep talk. This isn't a, a rally around how, what gifts he gave the disciples. This is turn your eyes to Jesus, the one with all power, so that you can go do what he has commanded you to do. Before we get too far, I also want to make this comment. 
In verse 17, what do we see? We see that they worshipped him, but some doubted. Like, like there was an essence of worship and still a mixture of doubt with that, and yet Jesus doesn't, he doesn't berate them over that. Like some of you this morning are singing songs to the, to the glory of God, and yet in your heart you're doubting what God is doing in your life. And I just want to let you know, God's not disappointed in that. Like, can I, can, can I say that? Like, like, he loves you and he wants you to grow and he understands there's doubt. He understands we're human. And so for some of us, like, like the man whose daughter was healed, like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus didn't preach him a message about why he should have more faith. Jesus healed his daughter. And for some of us, like right now, we are in a, a, a series, maybe a season of just doubt and continual struggle with who God is and, and who we are. And yet God's not frustrated with that. Now, again, there's a, there's a fine line between doubting and, and, and struggle and, and just jumping into sin and not caring. Like, don't hear what I'm not saying. But as we come to worship God and we bring our doubts before him, I think he rejoices over that. Because he died for us, because we're his children. Anyway, so, so that brings us then to verse 19. Right, and verse 19 is, is where, like, most often we probably think of, of Matthew 28. We think of verse 19, and we think of that first word. And, and if, okay, if I'm going to say something new this morning for you, because this is, this is new for me in the last couple of years. And when I, whenever you hear something new, like, please go check it out. So, so I'm not, like, like, go study this out. Like, if this is new for you, because this was always, you know, like I said, this was new for me a couple years ago, but go study it out. But I was taught growing up that, that verse 19, uh, the word go, like that was the main word of verse 19. It's what was on the banners. It was what was on the coffee cups. It was what was on the whatever else we gave out during missions conferences. Like, like go, go, go. Like everything was go. Right? And yet, as you would study out the Greek, you would find that go is not the imperative. It's not a command. Right? It's, it's, it's a participle. And some of you are like, what's a participle? I have no idea. I did horrible in English. Um, but people tell me that the participle would be more like this as you are going. Okay, so, so in your going, as you go, or just in your day-to-day life, what are you supposed to do then? Like, as you go about your day, what are you supposed to do? He says, go ye therefore and teach. So, so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, in your day-to-day going about life, you are to teach. And now, that Greek word teach is, is a verb. But we have the same word and noun form that we've already read in this passage. And so what's the noun? It's the same word just as a noun. It's found in verse 16. Verse 16 says, then the 11 disciples. There it is. That's the word. So that word disciples in 16 is a noun. And now that same Greek word is, is, is in verse 19 is just moved to this imperative. So you could say, to, Jesus is saying to his disciples, go make more of you. As you've been followers of me, go make more followers of Jesus. Right? You disciples, disciple. Right? We get this picture of, of disciples making more disciples who make more disciples who make more disciples who make more disciples. But what does Jesus say, though? He says, and in your day-to-day life, and in, in as you would go about your life, what do you do? You go and make disciples. Now, when I was taught, and again, I'm thankful for the church I grew up in. I'm thankful for the people who taught me the Word of God. But I was taught that this word go meant to faraway lands. I was taught this meant you had to go to Europe or Africa or Asia or somewhere far away that's never heard the gospel before. And yet I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is saying is in your everyday life, you're now going to be making disciples. So let's just talk about that a little bit. Like, what does it look like in everyday life to make disciples? This past week, we spent a couple days out on the water, out on the boat. 
And one of those days we were fishing. What do you do when you fish? You stare at the water for hours. Like, like, what if we said, hey, let's bring somebody alongside of us, and as we stare at the water for hours, we can, we can talk about Jesus. And some of you might say, well, I love to fish, but I don't think I'm ready to disciple somebody yet. i got a great idea. Find somebody who you think could disciple you and ask them to go fish with you, and then you bring it up and let them disciple you for a couple hours. Right? If you're a teenager, you just love to play video games. It's like eight hours every day. You know, like you're training for the video game world, and you're going to be go pro or whatever. Like, great. Bring somebody alongside of you and, and score touchdowns together. And then talk about Jesus somewhere in the middle of that. Right? In, in your life, as you would go. Like, like, ladies, I have no idea what to say for you, so I'm just going to pick from what my wife did this week. She went and got a pedicure. Sweet. Take somebody with you. It might be weird to have people rubbing your feet and you're talking about Jesus, but that's fine. Take someone with you. How great would that be that in our going, we would, we would have this idea of that, we get to, that we get to talk about Jesus. We get to disciple one another. It's not an event. It's not a, a certain night out of the year that we would go and make disciples. No, it's every single day as we go. I think one of the greatest pictures of this, well, the greatest picture of this is Jesus. Right? When we think about the life of Jesus, Jesus discipled his disciples in everyday life. Right? Like, there's wheat on the Sabbath, and he gets to use that to tell them about himself. Feeding the 5,000. Hey, we don't have enough food. Sweet, let me tell you about myself. Let me disciple you so you get a better idea of who I am and, and what I'm here to do. Woman at the well, let me talk to you about water. And as we talk about water, I'm going to point you to myself. Like, Jesus, prime example of, of here is someone who just in the, the going of his life, in the regular rhythm of his day, went out and made disciples. But I think another passage that I just love is back in Deuteronomy 6. You don't have to turn there, but if you take notes, just write down Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 is that passage with that verse that, you know, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and might. But then what follows that is what? Is that you would teach your children to do that. So, so what are we supposed to do? Well, well, mom, dad, we are supposed to disciple our own kids. Like, like, is it the church's job to disciple our children? Yes, they're going to camp this week. Praise God for that. But at the same time, that doesn't take away the responsibility for you in Deuteronomy 6 to disciple your own children. And so, so what are you supposed to disciple them in, according to Deuteronomy 6, that they would love God with all their being? So again, like we so often, me included, so often would teach our children and we teach them that David killed Goliath and yet they miss the God of David who really did all of that in any way. We show them cute pictures of, of animals on an ark and how Noah obeyed, but we forget to tell them about the God of the Bible who did this. And we're, not, we're teaching them about the Bible, but, but myself included, have not taught children that they would love God more. Like, I want my kids to know the Word of God, but I also want them to love the God of this Bible. And so Deuteronomy 6 is saying what? We're going to love God, and then we're going to teach our kids to do that. And how do we do that? Deuteronomy 6 says this way. When you wake up, when you go to bed, when you eat, and when you walk in the way. Modern translation, when you drive in the car. Right? Like, like for some of us, it's like, can we wake up in the morning and, and talk about Jesus to our kids? Can we have a, a regular bedtime routine? And maybe you're like, my kid's 18. I don't know how a regular bedtime routine would work for them. Um, you can figure it out still. To be able to say, like, hey, let's talk about Jesus. Do you eat? Sweet, talk about Jesus. Let's say, hey, we're going to sit down and at the dinner table. It doesn't have to be an hour discussion on the finer points of, of the hypostatic union. Just, hey, let's talk about Jesus. Let's, let's create in my children a greater love for the God that we serve. And if we can accomplish some of that in, in, at the dinner table, praise God for that. Do you drive around in the car with your kids? 
If so, use that opportunity to make disciples. And so what do we see? We see Jesus in verse 19 of Matthew 28 saying what? As you go about your day, as you, as you live your life, what are you going to do? You're going to disciple. And who are you going to disciple? You're going to disciple all nations. Here in New Jersey, you're like, you were just a few minutes away from one of the largest cities in, in the United States of America. Guess what? You are surrounded by all nations. There are people from every ethnicity and background and country and everything right here in your backyard. For some of you, they're all on the same street. Like you don't even have to leave your street and you get to make disciples of all nations. Like how awesome and how exciting and how cool is that? What do we do when we make disciples of all nations? We baptize them, uh, this, this sign, this picture that they believe in Jesus and, and they want to be a follower of him. We baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Verse 20, what do we do? We teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Okay, what, what are we teaching? We're teaching them everything that God commanded. What did God just command? He just commanded previous verse to make disciples. So in that teaching, what are we teaching? That you two would go make disciples. So again, here's that pattern. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Okay, let's just pause for a moment. I'm not trying to be flippant or, or disrespectful in any way, but, but I just... Can we not just say that this is a little bit crazy? Jesus, like the whole Old Testament, is pointing to you, and here's the good news of salvation for every human being on planet Earth, and your idea is I'm going to give it to 11 men who are going to go give it to 11 more men who then would give it to 11. Like, like Jesus, like the crux of the whole Bible, of the, the story of history, is riding on these 11 men. Like, if I was Jesus, I'm glad I'm not. Things would look a lot different. Uh, but, if I, like, I don't think I would say, hey, here's a fisherman, a couple of fishermen, here's a tax collector, here's a zealot. Yeah, like, let's, let's hand it over to you guys. And that, yet, that's what he does. He says, here's, here's these 11 who, who f- time after time throughout the Gospels has failed, failed to understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish. They still think at some point, you know, just a couple chapters ago, that he's going to overthrow Rome. Like they haven't got it all the way up to now. And now Jesus is saying, hey, you 11, you're the ones that's going to go out and change the world. Like, like you literally get to turn the world upside down. Go back to verse uh, 17. I think I know why they're doubting. Right? If, if I was thinking, Jesus, you're turning everything that you have done and your death and resurrection is now being placed on me, like I think you picked the wrong person. Right? In American culture today, what would we want? We'd want some celebrity who's already famous to come know Jesus, and somehow that's going to bring this country to revival. Right? And what normally happens is, is that celebrity gets slammed and, and taken off the popular list and is no longer relevant, and they don't bring the country to revival. Right? What we want is some large event, some really slick evangelist to come and, and show up and preach the gospel in such a way that hundreds of people get saved and praise God when that happens, but yet that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I'm giving it to you, 11, to go make more. We're not supposed to love money, but we normally do. Uh, So I'm going to give this illustration. If you leave with the thought of how can I make more money, then then you failed uh, to listen well. Okay? Uh, But if this morning, July 11th, I offered you $10 million or I offered you a penny. I've given this illustration before. I don't know if I've ever given it here. But if I offered you $10 million or I offered you a penny... Most of you would take $10 million, I'm assuming. 
Some of you would be worried that $10 million was from, you know, like a bank robbery or drug money or some, you know, so you'd be a little skeptical. And some of you, probably one of you, would think, well, maybe that penny is really valuable. Like, maybe it's super rare. Maybe it's worth a trillion dollars. It'd be foolish. You know, like, and some of you would, would think too much. But for most of us, hey, let's, let's take the 10 million bucks. Okay, but what if I said, hey, here's $10 million or here's a penny, but tomorrow I'm going to double that penny. So you get one cent today and you get two cents tomorrow. Right, you're doing math. One, two, four, eight, 16. Like 10 million versus 16 cents, like, eh, I think I'm still leaning $10 million. Right, and for many of us, that's what we view making disciples. Like, like if we could just have one event with the 10 million, like a lot of people could save, like, let's do it. And yet that penny would keep doubling. And so at the end of a month, so sometime in August, we would be somewhere around $5 million. Which means what? It means day 31, you'd have $10 million. So if you could just keep doubling, right? So, so what does that mean? It means day 32, you have $10 million more than, than what was sitting here on this pulpit. Just from doubling every single day from a penny. And so day 32 has, has $20 million. Can you imagine what day 64 would have? And some of us are like, we're really good at math. It's probably $40 million because 64 is twice as many as 32. But you'd be wrong because, you know, $40 million comes on day 33. So at day 64, and I'm not good at math, so I stole somebody else's math, uh, but day 64, according to their math, you would have $184 quadrillion. And yet, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you are a disciple who goes and makes more disciples, who makes more disciples, who makes more disciples, what do we get? We get this compounding effect. What does that mean? It means that 11 who would go out and make more can change the world. And some of you right now, I just maybe, some of you right now are like, yeah, but there's Pentecost. You know, 3,000 kind of joined the church in one day. Okay, granted, duly noted, 3,000 joined the church in one day. But what we see throughout the book of Acts is not a bunch of Pentecost. What we see in the book of Acts as the church would grow is a bunch of one-on-one, family-on-family, a Philippian jailer here and a demon-possessed girl here reaching their own families. So let's just take this math of $10 million versus a penny, and let's just take this math and let's just apply it to the church. There's probably more than 100 people here this morning, but 100 is easy. So let's start with that. Of 100 people in this church would say, I'm going to win somebody for Jesus. I'm going to share the gospel with them. And I understand we don't save people, but just for sake of illustration, 100 people say, we're going to make disciples this year. Okay, So that means next year, that 100 now is 200. And all 200 say, well, we're going to go make disciples. That means next year we're at 400, then 800, then 1,600, then 3,200, then 6,400, then 12,800, 25,600, 51,200. Here's the number I'm trying to get at. 102,400. Okay, in 11 years. You go from 100 people to 100,000 people. If everyone just won one. Now, granted, I, I understand the math doesn't quite work. Why? Because, because the person I've been most eagerly trying to share the gospel with, and I've been doing a Bible study with, and I'm, I'm trying to share Jesus, like I've been doing that for two years. And so, so I understand the math doesn't work. Uh, you think that's impressive? Casey has been with the same lady for four and a half years. Just sharing the gospel and, and loving her. Like, so I understand the math doesn't work, but I also want us to get a glimpse of what it would look like for one person or for 100 people to get on board and say, hey, let's go make disciples. Like if, if we said in 11 years you can have 100,000 people that have been reached in South Jersey or 100,000 people that have been reached in Southwest Florida, like praise God for that. But it's not going to happen if we don't start doing our part and making disciples in everyday life. In my brief 11 years of ministry, this is the number one, can I say excuse, that I hear for why we don't make disciples. And and they don't maybe use this word, but it boils down to this. 
They said, that's not the culture of my church. They said, but that, like, that's not what our church does. Okay, and I'm trying to be loving, um, but I just want to say a couple things. One, this is what Jesus commanded us to do. So, like, go do it. Like, like even if the math wasn't cool and made us have 100,000 people or a $184 quadrillion, like, even if that part wasn't even true, Jesus commanded us to make disciples. So let's be obedient to the Word of God. Let's be obedient to the one who has all power that he just said in verse 18. Like, like I would rather serve him than, than serve a church. Can I say that? I'm a pastor, right? I can say that. But then secondly, like, you could be the change. And I don't, I know, I mean, I know my family, right? I don't know everything that's going on in this church. I don't know all the ins and outs. I don't know the culture necessarily of this church. But what I am going to say is it takes one person to change the culture of a church. I know stories of youth groups that change the culture of the church to saying, we're going to go make disciples. And a youth group of, of 50 teens said, we're all going to go win one person this year. And it begins to, to, to change the culture of their parents, who change the culture of their Sunday school classes, who change the culture of everything that's going on. And now here's a disciple-making church. What we see, though, as we would close in verse 20, Jesus ends with another reason why we don't have to doubt. Ends with that phrase, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. If you, I didn't list all the times this phrase is used, but if you were to go through the Bible and you would look at the times that, that God would say to somebody in the Old Testament, I am with you. Like this is Moses saying, God, I'm not good enough. I don't have the ability. I can't speak well enough to go and lead your people out of Egypt. And what does God say? He doesn't say, yes, you are. Or not, or, he says, I'm with you. Like, like the most comforting thing that you can be told when you are doubting is that the God of this universe is with you. Like you don't have to go out in your everyday life and make disciples in your own power and your own ability. Why? Because Jesus is with you. So we can see we can see Moses, we see Joshua, we see Isaiah, we see countless times in the Old Testament where, where God would say to somebody, I am with you. And what is the most often time that he says that, I feel like most often it's when there's doubt. And yet over and over again, he's going to say, I am with you. And when does he stop being with you? According to verse 20, never. Like, I don't have to go out and make disciples and wonder if the power of God is at work in my life as I do this. Why? Because he's already promised that he has power and he's already promised that he's going to be with me. So let's go act on those promises and let's go out and make disciples and let's be like 11 men who turn the world upside down. I think for many of us, and I, and I including myself, okay, I preach this to myself more often than I preach it out loud to other people. But for many of us, the Christian life can become very boring. Right? Like, like reading the Bible, I was just in Zechariah. Man, I'm just going to be honest. Like, it was a struggle. I'm reading words. It's like, I don't even know the context. Like, like you're going to be judged, but now these people aren't being judged. And, and I was just struggling. Like, like it's, it's hard sometimes. And I'm not saying don't go read Zechariah, so don't miss the point. But what happens is, is when we share the gospel, when I come home on Thursday after doing a Bible study with someone who doesn't know Jesus, like, man, the Christian life is exciting. Man, the Christian life is worth living. Like, I just, I just want to do more of that, and I need Zechariah, and I need the, to be in the Word of God so that I can teach other people the Word of God. Like, if I'm not growing, how am I going to help someone else, how am I going to help someone else grow? And so I need it, and I need to be there. But there's also this thrill and this joy when you experience the presence of God in your life as you're seeking to make disciples of Him. And so I would encourage you as a church. Like, I know uh, what's going on. I mean, I know you don't have a pastor. Right? I know there's that search. I know you're looking for that guy. But I, I just an encouragement to you is that, like, uh, I, I'm going to say it anyway. You can do this without him. 
You can do this in the meantime. You can, you can go build a relationship with someone at a, at a coffee shop that you like to visit. You can do this with your own kids. You can do this with a coworker. Like You can be busy at work making disciples. And how awesome would that be for the next guy to come in and here's a disciple-making church? Like, like, man, that'd be great. And so I just encourage you this morning, like, like <clears throat> I, I want us to make disciples, and yet at the same time I want us to love the God who we're making disciples of. Like, let's, let's leave here with a greater love and desire to tell people about this Jesus who has all power, who doesn't leave us, who desires to, to give us life and to rescue us from, from our sin, to rescue us from sin, death, and hell. And he's going to give us life. Like, we should love him and we should want to tell other people about him. So let's get out there and do it. And as you guys do it here in South Jersey, we will do it in Southwest Florida. And, and praise God that we get to do this together and, and we get to some ways partner together across great distances and make disciples for Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and then I don't know who I'm turning it over to, but they are going to come up, I hope, uh, after I pray. Father, forgive us for our doubts. God, we doubt you. Uh, we doubt your wisdom. We doubt your plans. We doubt that, um, God, we just sometimes think we know better. And, and so, God, I pray that you forgive us for that. Um, I pray that you'd help our unbelief. I thank you that um, in spite of our doubts that you, through Christ, you've given us this power, you've given us this authority to go forth and make disciples. I thank you that in spite of our doubts that you are with us. God, I would have left myself a long time ago, and yet you didn't. So God, you are, you are so great, you are so awesome, you are so worthy of our worship and our praise. God, I pray that you'd help even one person this morning to make a decision to go make disciples. Pray that it would be one who would say, I'm going to tell others this week about a Savior who's worth telling people about. And that one would become two, and that two would become four, and four would become eight, and we would just see this multiplication effect happen across all of South Jersey. God, do a work in us. Help us to be different because we spent time with you, with your people, and with your word this morning. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you could give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.